0: morning's scripture comes from two different passages, first from John 17, 20 to 24, and then from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. First from John 17, where Jesus is praying for his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And then going to the beginning of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's a little awkward and laborious to uh, get the headset on with the, I can't wear it with my glasses and with my mask and so apologize. apologies for the uh, brief uh, second there. It's really uh, great to see uh, so many faces, uh, so many friends, again, that I um, hadn't seen for so long, and then I see there's some new uh, faces here that I don't know, and so it's a real joy to be together and to uh, and to welcome uh, you all, and especially those who are visiting. Uh, we do hope that um, uh, this uh, community and this uh, time together uh, will be a place where you uh, are able to meet with God as you are and as you've come. Uh, now, hopefully, I usually start with some sort of joke. I thought about doing just some quick knock-knock joke just to keep things light off the top, but uh, I'm not going to. Uh, as hopefully everyone knows, and, uh, you know, one thing we I try not to do is to assume that we have, uh, that everyone's an insider. And so, uh, we always, I always want to assume that not everyone is on the same page and is aware. So, Hopefully, most of us in this room this morning or online uh, knows that this past week, Canada, uh, we had our first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation in order to honor lost children and survivors of residential schools, their families, and communities. Now, this day, uh, which was September 30th, it's been called Orange Shirt Day actually since 2013, although in some ways you wouldn't even know that uh, because it seems like all of a sudden everybody's got orange shirts and never did before, but this has been since 2013, though of course it actually started in 1973 when Phyllis Webstat arrived at her residential school wearing a nice new orange shirt. Uh, which was then immediately taken away from her along with other clothing as part of Canada's generations-long practice of stripping away Indigenous culture, freedom, self-esteem from the Indigenous peoples. And of course, as we know, most horrifically, and I'd say cowardly, the practice targeted children, thousands of whom died in these schools to further cultural genocide in the name of literally making Canada more white, and of making the indigenous people more white. That is in all of the do- documentation going back to the 1800s. That was the purpose. And now, of course, today we look at that and we go, are you, are you kidding me? And thank you, Jean, for your prayer about that. Um, it really uh, resonated with kind of where I uh, am. But. And of course, as followers of Jesus... Now, this reality should bear an additional reflection as we are brought to face the face with the completely disgusting and shameful truth that the schools were actually driven by Christians. This was a Christian uh, idea. Often done in the name of mission, mission that sadly and looks an awful lot like much cross-cultural mission throughout the globe over the centuries. Fortunately, over the last hundred years, uh, mission work has been moving away from this. But where what is intended to bring the light of Christ to the world actually amounts to little more than forced conversion to white European culture. And this is done, of course, in Canada. Was done through killing indigenous culture of the peoples uh, in the name of reaching them with the gospel. So, as Christians, we, uh, as we, we did not participate in this, um, but it should make us embarrassed and angry and ready to be different. Now, most of us, again today, did not participate directly in active cultural genocide. But the more we listen and learn to the continued realities of Turtle Islands, indigenous people, this generational and systemic oppressions that they continue to live under today, we gain our own self-awareness and our own personal and societal biases and ignorances come to light And we can no longer ignore and excuse away. And I actually think this is a wonderful time. This is a wonderful time for Canada. It's not a time to put our heads in the sand and just feel guilt and shame, though there is some validity to those feelings. But it's a wonderful time for us to grow and to learn and to let go of the places where we have held on to power and assumptions and biases. And then we can move past. No, that's not the right word. We can move forward together. And of course, this is not just for us as Canadians, even more than being Canadian, sorry, uh, well, most of us, um, sorry, I lost myself, That I threw in a little bonus there. <laughs> this is not just us as Canadians, of course, even though more than being Canadian, this call is not merely political or patriotism, our responsible to be participants of change is, of course, deeply and primarily for us, more than being Canadian, it is deeply rooted in our faith. What does it mean to love Jesus if not to be reconcilers and justice makers? This past year and a half has been quite eye-opening, to say the least, in so many ways. And we've tried to touch on this throughout the year. But as we have an increased awareness of generations long of systemic racism in our country, not only with indigenous truth and reconciliation, but with Black Lives Matter, Asian hate, Islamophobia, We've had an increased awareness of continued divide between the equality of men and women in society as has been exemplified by the current challenges we're seeing in the States over women's rights over their own bodies. Regardless of your moral religious views on abortion, it does still come down to fighting over who has the right to a woman's body as well as the Me Too movement, of course, revealing how much we silence the victim to protect the male and the powerful. We've seen that those who are lower in socioeconomic realities are more likely to get sick from uh, the COVID and from uh, all realms. We're finding that even in our Canadian Charter of Rights, we're not allowed to discriminate on all kinds of things, but we actually can discriminate best on, uh, on your economic status. The charter actually allows for that. And we're realizing these things to a deeper extent. And interwoven with all of these, we've seen, and let's be honest, we've added our voices in some way to this increasing polarization and the divisions in society, be it uh, left versus right, or progressive versus traditional, or masked versus anti-masker. Oh, that's right. And we had a pandemic too. Remember that? (laughs) And I'm going to address all of this in the next 20 minutes. I'm just kidding. I'm merely trying to paint a a picture um, of terrible things, but wonderful things. What an opportunity we have now that we live in to becoming face-to-face with these realities and to be part of change as followers of Christ. Because even with this painting, there is so much beauty and life and hope in the world. And in Christ, we can be a part of that. We have been a part of that, and we can continue to be. Now, I think it is important for us as followers of Jesus to seriously reflect on what kind of faith, hope, and love God is calling to us in this time of increased division and hostility. And so over the next eight weeks, we are going to be reflecting on God's call for us to be people of reconciliation, people who live out and celebrate unity and diversity, digging into what unity and diversity as the people of God looks like in a fractured world. Uh, One resource that we are going to be using to accompany us on this is a book called uh, The Beautiful Community by Erwin Ince, Jr., Um, Our life groups will be um, having conversations around the themes of this book, so if you are interested in kind of digging deeper in that way with others in conversation, uh, please speak with Abby. Uh, Abby is one of our pastors uh, who led communion this morning. She'll happily connect you uh, with a life group. Now this being said, you do not need to have read the book to engage with us on Sunday mornings as Sunday mornings and the life groups are meant to accompany one another and build off of one another, but neither are dependent on the other to engage uh, meaningfully. And uh, as is true for anything that we endeavor to do as a community whose center is God, we always want to ground ourselves in who God is, who God has revealed himself to be. And this is quite simple, right? I mean, God gave us the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to lead us. So talking about who God reveals himself to be is easy. There's nothing divisive or controversial if you just read the Bible, right? <laughs> well, of course, wrong. We know that that's not true. Quite frankly, uh, I've been seeing these comments more and more recently. And anyone who starts a comment saying something like, a simple reading of the Bible tells us, or my Bible says, usually that person is about to say something that could be one of many different ways of looking and reading at Scripture, but they want to make sure that you know they've got the correct one. And they simply want you to shut up about anything or anyone who disagrees with them. By first claiming they're the ones who have the true meaning of the Bible by saying, if you just read it, this is what you will come to. A Cherokee theologian, Bill Baldridge addresses this when he writes, When Christians confuse their confessions of faith with absolute knowledge of reality, they invite a challenge of hubris. That's a fancy word for pride. When they confuse the limitations of their humanity with the nature of God, they invite blasphemy. Who can claim absolute knowledge of reality but God alone? So let's take, for example, uh, one of the most central revelations of God, and therefore one of our most central beliefs about who God is. Namely, that God is Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the understanding that God is one but three persons, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this has been a central idea in Christianity right from the beginning. I mean, we hear it in Jesus' words, passages like uh, from the Gospel of John, which Garth read for us, where Jesus speaks of his eternal relationship with the Father, being one with the Father, sending the Holy Spirit as the Father has sent him. Images of eternal and reciprocal love and a shared will together. We also hear a lot about the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the New Testament letters. Passages like the reading that Garth did with the Romans, from Romans, portraying the shared work of Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit, and everything from the creation of the universe to the resurrection of Jesus to the restoration of all things in the new heaven and earth. Now, while there are hints of God being one, but somehow also more than one in the Old Testament, um, that's the part of the Bible that talks about uh, the history of the Jews and the Jewish uh, people uh, before the time of Jesus. It is right from the time of Jesus' teaching, his death and his resurrection, that God has most fully revealed the nature of who God truly is. That the one God of the Jews is actually an eternal divine relationship of love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I was Irwin Ince Jr., so that's um, uh, the guy who wrote this. I might just call him Irwin. We're not on first name basis, but his name is very long. So I'm just going to call him Irwin because, you know, we're going to be good friends one day. God, uh, as he reminds us, God wants us, God wants to be known. God wants us to know him, and so God reveals himself to us as God truly is. And when you bring together the witness of what the scriptures say about who God tells us he is, you see this mysterious yet beautiful picture of God being one, but God being three. God is diversity and God as unity. God, within God's very self, is perfect, eternal community of love. God is being in communion, three distinct persons, yet perfectly unified in in love, and they are one. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight words it, they are an eternal fellowship of difference. Now, we often talk about a unity of the three, but we want to note that they are difference. There is difference within the Trinity. God and God's very self has an eternal fellowship of difference, distinction, particular yet unified, harmonious, sharing one will and one essence. As Irwin writes, "Unity in diversity, diversity in unity, perfect, uni- perfectly united in beautiful community." That sounds like a song lyric, actually. Rhymes. One yet three, three yet one. But of course, naturally, as humans are wont to do, in the same moment that God is self-revealed as three in one in the coming of Jesus, so humans began disagreeing about it. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes. I'm going to talk about a couple of theological concepts. Some of you will find it interesting. Some of you will already know this. Some of you will want to crit- critique me for how oversimplified I'm being. Uh, and yet some of you are just going to uh, want to take a nap. <laughs> I-, I won't judge you. No judgment here. One thing about a community like Spring Garden that I love is there's such a diversity of interests and even theological backgrounds and understandings of God In Christ. What's interesting to some won't be interesting to all, and that is actually part of the beauty of human community. When we value diversity, we're willing to put aside some of our own interests when we know it's interesting to others. And so I'm going to bank on that, and those of you who don't find this interesting, you can just consider yourself being sacrificial for the sake of the other. There you go. So this being said, um, as you may or may not know, the word Trinity. The word that we use in Christianity to speak of this three-in-oneness of God, the word Trinity is not actually in the Bible. The word Trinity was first used by a man from northern Africa named Tertullian in the third century. And it's important to note some back history. In the Roman Empire, which is the time of of Jesus, spanning on for a few hundred years past that, In the Roman Empire, there were two main languages, Latin and Greek. And as the early church grew, it spread throughout the Roman Empire. The church naturally also spoke these two main languages. Now, this is a bit of an oversimplification to say, but basically what happened over time was that Christians in the East spoke Greek, Christians in the West spoke Latin. And in the 3rd and 4th century... Language and ideas had begun to be forming and talked about how to think about God, who is three in one. And the main language was around how God is one essence, but three persons. So as one, the Father, Son, and Spirit share one essence. They are one God. The word essence is is a big one that you use all the time. They are one in the nature of who they are and what they are. They are one Substance one essence. But they are also three persons. They have distinction from one another. They have particularity from one another. But even in their distinctiveness, they can never be separated from one another because they share one essence. So you can actually never talk about the Father without actually talking about the Son and the Spirit, even though they are three. They are one essence. Which, of course, this is very confusing Uh, But then add to the confusion is that the Greek word for what makes them distinct, distinct, is hypostasis. And when you translate hypostasis, meaning distinct, to Latin, it becomes substantia. And substantia is the Latin word not for distinct, but for essence. (laughs) So you literally, in other words, you had part of the church saying in Greek, God is one essence, but three hypostasis. And the other side of the room, you had the group arguing back, saying, no, God is one hypostasis, but three persona. God is three hypostasis. No, God is one hypostasis. And on and on this went. However... These two groups did work, try to work in unity. The Greek church and the Latin church continued pursuing unity, meeting together in two big major councils where they created what we call the Nicene Creed. It is a statement meant to be a unifying document that sought to express what all Christians believe about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A creed that could be used to fight against heresy. But of course, a couple hundred years later in the 6th century the Western Latin-speaking church decided it needed a little tweaking. So they made some changes to the creed. And one change in particular, that was the nail in the coffin that started this major, even more major division between East and West churches. The original creed said, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. Sorry, the original creed in Greek. Who proceeds from the Father? The Land Church decided they would add the word filioque, which means "from the Son." So, where it said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, it now said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Right? And we, most of us, would go, "Okay, the okay one word, like right, big deal." But this one, this word change was the beginning of the end of unity between the East and the West, culminating in what is called the Great Schism in 1054, where the entire church completely severed and would have nothing to do with each other. The worldwide church cut in half because of some words. Sadly, of course, one of the other major dividing lines was what to make the communion bread out of. Should it be unleavened or not? Now, I don't know what they would say about us using uh, gluten-free, egg-free, milk-free, vegan <laughs> bread. They probably we, we would have been uh, hung, like murdered at the stake or whatever the expression is. Something that was supposed to be our greatest place of unity, just like knowing that God is one and God is three, became the greatest place of division within the church. Now, you're probably wondering, why am I telling you this? But it's not just interesting and important history, but as we come together to discover what it means to be a people of unity and diversity, to be a people of truth and reconciliation, it strikes me that the very core of what we believe, that God is eternal being in community, that God's very self is perfection of unity and diversity... That this core of what we believe throughout history in the hands of well-meaning theologians and leaders and doctors of the church has become the very place of division and disunity. God, who is one, has become the place of our greatest division with one another. God, who is one, but who is Trinity, one substance, but three persons, a mutual indwelling of perfection, of love, of three persons in perfect harmony and will, and yet somehow in our human pursuit to know God and to serve God, we find ways to sever ourselves from one another. We choose not to see Jesus in others because they use the wrong word to describe who God is, because they worship the way they worship God doesn't look like what we think it should be, because they baptize babies and not adults, because they use one loaf instead of two, because they drink separate individual cups, not one chalice, because they interpret passages differently than we do. And so we seek safety of being with people who think like us. Which through history has usually meant people who look like us. In the pursuit of a false god of infallible doctrine. I love theology. But the pursuit of infallible, perfect doctrine is a false god. However, as Irwin reminds us, (laughs) fragmentation, division, disharmony, disunity, that's our story, but they are not God's story. God's story is the beauty, sorry, God's story is the story of beauty, and it is most profoundly seen in his communal life. Richard Twiss, he is an indigenous author from the uh, Teton Lakota tribe. He writes that God's unity is constituted by diversity, and God's diversity is rooted in unity of will and purpose. The church, therefore, is the church in as much as it has been included in that harmony. What the church is in its deepest reality, it is called to be in every aspect Which to me means if we truly believe in the God of scriptures, if we truly seek to live as if Jesus is our Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God, then the deepest reality of who we are as people must be about unity constituted by diversity. We must find ways to put aside our petty fights about theology and doctrine and liturgy and ecclesiology so that we can live out and live in the unity of the Holy Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, wouldn't this all be easier if the Trinity, God is three persons in one essence, was just the simple thing to wrap your head around? You know, a nice simple math equation where one plus one plus one equals one. Yet, this is who God is, and this is how God has revealed God's self to us. And the part that's even more mind-bending is that God has invited us into the very core of that mutual indwelling of perfect love. As Richard Twist writes, we have inclusion in this radical community, the society of love in the Trinity. We are invited into it. And we are invited into it with the people that we vehemently have disagreements, theological and otherwise. I want to leave you with two things. The first is a metaphor. Uh, There are so many metaphors that try to help us understand what the Trinity means, and they all fail miserably. (laughs) But there's one that in, in this conversation at least I find helpful, even though it has its limits. Um, I actually shared this back in January, but I found someone else who actually says it better than I do. Is a theologian named Alan Coppedge. Coppedge. And it's from his book, The God Who is Triune. Now, in this quote, quote, Coppedge uses the phrase, Economic Trinity. And so again, you know, it's hard to talk about the Trinity without some of this mumbo-jumbo. But the economic Trinity is theological language, which essentially means the kind of the roles and the function of each member of the Trinity. Uh, The economic is actually an image of the household, where different people have roles in a healthy functioning of the home. You know, one person empties the dishwasher, one person takes out the garbage, uh, that kind of thing, so that the, the, the household runs well and unified. So the economic trinity, the workings of God, of the three members, what each one kind of does. So here's the metaphor. Light is one of the most pervasive analogies used by the early church in describing the trinity. In fact, it is the only physical analogy that was used in the Nicene Creed, where the creed, where the son is described as God from God, light from light. The church fathers also use the source of light a ray of light is the illumination and the illumination of light to depict the three members of the Trinity. Within the providence of God, a better understanding of the physical qualities of light has enhanced the analogy in our own day, describing the inner penetration of the life of the Trinity. A single beam of light is analogous to the shared existence of the members of the Trinity united in coherence, which is a f- fancy word for unity and, and, d- and dwelling together. So a single beam of light is analogous, is, is an analogy for the shared existence of the members of the Trinity. The distinctive functions of the economic Trinity, what each member of the Trinity does, are analogies to light shining through a prism. And if you don't know, when light shines through a prism, it refracts, and it be, and then we see the colors of the rainbow, rainbow. Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. So the trinity, the light shining through a prism, showing us that this one bright light, white light is actually multiple. These functional distinctions do not prevent each member of the trinity from continuing to share through mutual permeation the common divine life of the others, In other words, a beam of light is one, but it is also many. And like the unified one beam of light reflecting to, through a prism to reveal the beautiful colors that make up light, so the light of God reflects to reveal the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of whom inseparably together shine their light upon us, reflecting and refracting a beautiful kaleidoscope Of moving, interwoven colors and shapes. Our unity and diversity as a people, invited to dwell in the light of love, is this beautiful kaleidoscope. This is the beauty of God, and this is the beauty God has created us as his people to dwell in with love with one another. And finally, in their book, The Concept of God in Black Theology, And I'm going to, Sabelo Ntwasa and Basil Moore, they write this. If true humanness, hence freedom and wholeness. If true humanness lies in the spaces between people. And if God is about true humanness and thus freedom and wholeness. We need new images of God which give content and direction to the spaces between people. In other words, we need relational images of God. And there is no more relational image of God than Trinity, one in three, three in one, eternal community of diversity and unity. And God invites us into that community as Father, Spirit, and Son, and they long for us to shine the light of God into the spaces between people, seeking unity and diversity, seeking truth and reconciliation as the people of a Trinitarian God. Uh, Let's pray. Father God, we ask uh, that you would answer the prayer that Jesus prayed, prayed. We ask that through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we may be one. Father, just as you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you. May we also be in you, Father, Son, and Spirit. So that the world would believe that you sent Jesus. Jesus gave us the glory that you gave him. So that we may be one as you are one. Jesus in us and you in him. So that we may be brought to complete unity. That is when the world will know that you sent Jesus. And have loved us even as you have loved Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God forevermore. Amen.